Welcome to the Andy Social Podcast. This is episode 173 with Sean Munger. Now, before we get into this episode with Sean, if we haven't met already, my name is Andy Dowling. And in addition to hosting this podcast, I also play bass in the Australian metal band Lord. And if you haven't heard our music before, you can go to lord.net.au. There's a whole bunch of video clips. There's streaming music, our entire back catalogs there. Lots of information and a great way to get a taste of what we're all about. We have a brand new single out, which is the first single of our new album, Fallen Idols. That single is called United. Welcome back. And if you go to lord.net.au slash united, you'll be able to see all the album information. You'll be able to see the United single. Um, you'll also be able to check out some preview tracks. There's lots of links there and information. And um, by the time this episode comes out, you should be able to pre-order the new album, Fallen Idols, as well. So go and follow us on the socials, go to lord.net.au, go and give it a crack. And as I've been saying in these intros uh, for the past several weeks, if you do enjoy the new song or you have been enjoying what we've been doing as a band, um, I would love for you guys to uh, sacrifice a few seconds of your time to share uh, any of our music around, but especially the new single, um, and connect with any friends uh, that you know of that love metal. Um, for us, it's been a long time since uh, the last album, Digital Lies, in 2013. And while we have been doing lots of stuff in between, such as box sets and live albums and EPs and all sorts, um, it's been a long time since a studio album. So for me personally, I'm a little bit nervous. So I'm hoping that we can reach as many people as we have in the past. Um, it, it has been a little while since that last album. So anything that you guys can do to spread the word and uh, share it around with uh, anyone that you know that might dig our music would mean the world to me and also to the guys as well. So go and check it all out, lord.net.au, lord.net.au slash united, and you can find it all on the socials as well. Thank you. When I'm not being a heavy metal warrior, I also host a second podcast called The Self-Starter Podcast, which is all about small business, self-employment, and freelancing. Season one wrapped up at the end of 2018. Season two will kick off in June of this year, 2019. And if you've got any guest recommendations for season two, please let me know. I am in the process of bulk recording season two at the moment, um, but I still have plenty of people to find, so please shoot me a message. But uh, if you are interested in creating your own business or you have already started one, or maybe you're a freelancer, or maybe you just uh, are interested in earning a little bit of money on the side, a bit of a side hustle, or you know somebody that is just completely unhappy in their job, a, f a family member, a friend, a loved one um, that is just looking to get out. Maybe someone's all talk, but then just don't quite have the courage to take that first step. Either you or your friend or whoever you know, go over to selfstarter.com.au. Go and check it out. Um, any questions, let me know. I'd love to be able to help as many people as possible. I've certainly got a lot out of this self-starter project over the last year and a half, and I'm looking to share as much of what I learn with as many people as possible. So go and check it all out, selfstarter.com.au. Thank you for the support. Shout out, shout out, shout out. Every week, I thank one person, one legend who supports me, the podcast, the band, etc. And it can be a range of different ways, something very simple, such as a message of encouragement, right up to buying some merchandise or shouting me beer via the PayPal button over at andysocial.net. It doesn't matter. It all helps and uh, keeps this whole thing moving. So this week, this week's shout out is for Tony Piccoli. Tony is from Detroit, Michigan, and uh, Tony is the front guy, the front man of Imminent Sonic Destruction, a great band uh, from Detroit, and I got to see them play in New York um, when in 2016, I think, at um, 
far out. I don't even know the venue. Anyway, whatever. Um, it was with Circus Maximus and uh, it was a great night and I got to meet Tony, I think either at that show in New York or a few days later at Prog Power in Atlanta. But um, we've stayed in contact ever since and uh, Tony sent me a really nice message the other day, um, just giving me some great positive feedback about the podcast. So um, thank you so much, Tony. It really means a lot and it's great that you're listening to the podcast and enjoying it and spreading it around. And um and anyone um, who's interested in checking out his band, go and check out Imminent Sonic Destruction uh, by going to imminentsonicdestruction.com. That's a mouthful. Fire out. You should get an easier band name like Lord. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Um, Tony, when you hear this, uh, shoot me a message. I'm going to flick you out something in the post. I've got some stuff lying around the house. Uh, I'm going to ship it all the way to Detroit and um, I'll find something wacky and ridiculous and, I don't know, something amusing that I'll send out the post because we all like getting something in the mail. So thank you so much, Tony. Really appreciate the uh, positive vibes and the encouragement it means a hell of a lot. On the podcast this week, we have Sean Munger. Sean is a historian. He's an author. He's a writer. He's a podcaster. He's a jack of all trades. He does heaps. He has a brand new book out called Jake's 88, which is a novel um, based on a, uh, I'm going to butcher this, a teenager growing up in the late 80s in the Midwest of the United States. And it's a bit of a time capsule at uh, cultural timestamp of what was going on in the late 80s. And it's a little bit of a reflection of his own times uh, growing up uh, in that era as well. And um, I'll have links to Jake's 88 and all the other books, because um, he's done quite a few that he's released so far over in the show notes over at andysocial.net. Uh, Sean also has a podcast called Second Decade Podcast, which is all about the 1810s. And I ask Sean, why the 1810s? And I'll let him explain that. Um, he also does a lot of online um, history lessons. Um, so if you go to seanmunger.com, uh, that's S-E-A-N-M-U-N-G-E-R.com, you'll be able to see, well, absolutely everything that he does, but you'll be able to access a lot of his online classes. So no matter where you are in the world, if you're looking to, I guess, beef up your history knowledge, uh, maybe it will help you with um, some formal studies or you're just curious and you just want to learn more about the world around you. Um, Sean has a great way of uh, delivering content and he's got an amazing YouTube channel as well, which I've checked out a few things and I'll, I'll dump a few things in the show notes over at andysocial.net also. Um, there's a whole range of things that he's involved with. I'm not going to crap on. I'm going to allow Sean to explain a lot of this stuff. I ask a lot of dumb questions, but a lot of really great responses from Sean. And um, as always, I'll have everything in the show notes over at andysocial.net. So enough yapping from me. Please enjoy this really, really cool chat with Sean Munger. I've been stalking uh, a bit of your life, and I've dug deep and deeper into your world, and and I was and I've known you for quite a few years, and very sort of uh, remotely on the other side of the globe, um, and I'm struggling where to start because you've you've got you've got this um, persona that you've created being that history guy, but you've also got um, just around your own name and your own branding as being an author and a, you know, a writer over the years, and you've got this this amazing mix of nonfiction and fiction in your world. And, um, I guess probably the, probably the most, uh, sort of recent and most, uh, sort of timely thing to talk about is the new book that's just come out now. And that's, uh, Jake's 88. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it was, it came out on January 15th. Um, it's been a long time in the making by long time. I mean, uh, over 20 years. Um, it's project that's been a labor of love of mine for, um, Really, as long as I've fancied myself a writer, 
um, in any kind of serious sense. It was one of the first things that I began writing really back in high school. And I went to high school in the 80s, uh, late 80s. And of course, that was its own world in, in, in a way. Um, and I suffered from one of the most unfortunate uh, adv- pieces of advice that people give to new writers, which I think is, I can now look back on it in hindsight, is really terrible advice, but the, uh, the advice is write what you know. Well, of course, when I was you know, 17, 18, what I knew was you know, the world around me. So high school and that whole kind of social scene and the music and that type of thing. Um, of course, you know, writing about that at the time, no one would be interested in that. But fast forward 30 years when the world is now so incredibly different and kind of taking what I wrote uh, back then and then kind of seeing it, sort of seeing my own uh, youth from the standpoint of the wisdom I now have as an adult and also seeing that it really is kind of a vanished time. Everything is so different now. And so the process of writing it and I had, you know, put down the manuscript many, many years ago. And I'm like, Oh, well, that was just a sort of an experiment to, to figure out how to write a book and uh, you know, how to string sentences together and things like that. And then looking at it with a new, a new eye in the modern world, I'm like, wow, you know, that might actually be an interesting story because it's like going back in time and putting yourself back in this world that doesn't exist anymore. So that was kind of how it it got revived. And uh, I really got started working on it again last fall. And it came together fairly quickly once I finally figured out how to get the the characters right and the story right and and really just how to write it so that people would see what I saw kind of looking back on it from from the modern day. So that, that's kind of the story, uh, the story of it in a nutshell. Um, well, one, it, one of the things I was going to say is, and when I was looking at the book and some of the uh, just little spiels around um, just describing what the book's about on a high level, um, I th- the first thing I thought was, surely, even though it's a fictional tale, um, that surely there'd be a little bit of an autobiographical sort of uh, link there back to yourself and some of the experiences that you would have had um, growing up. So you just filling in some of those pieces there that it makes sense. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's not really autobiographical in a real strict sense. Mm. Um, I, I say there's a little... I have a little uh, uh, a little essay at the at the very end of the book where I talk about the history of it and writing it, and I, I mentioned that um, I think uh, Jake Doyle, the main character, if if he and I knew each other, we probably wouldn't like each other much and wouldn't <laughs> recognize much in each other. But <laughs> but there is kind of a there is kind of a commonality. Um, the book it's a coming of age story. Uh, it's about. Uh, uh, this kid, Jake, and he's 16 throughout most of the book, and I, I was 16 in 1988. It takes place in the year 1988, hence the title. Um, and it takes place in a, a, a fictional city in, in the Midwest. It's called Mandan City in the book, but um, it very closely resembles Omaha, Nebraska, which is almost in the exact center of the United States. Uh, I lived there for a number of years during my uh, kind of my formative years and have a lot of a lot of memories of it. There's a couple of uh, things that are more autobiographical than others. Um, I was uh, I was in a tornado in Omaha. It was in July of 1988, and uh, that event is depicted uh, fairly accurately in the book, at least as far as what the storm was. It was one of the strangest experiences of my life. I've written about it on my blog. Um, 
And so that experience uh, is kind of about probably about the most um, uh, true of really uh, anything that's in the book. And then the, the other things that are true are kind of more in an atmospheric sense, like what the high school kind of social hierarchy was like and the music that people listened to and the experience of, you know, going to popular movies and um, just kind of growing up in that time that I tried to get, I tried to get right. But those are things that you can get right without being forced to stick to a specific sequence of events or a specific type of event. So that's kind of how I went about it. It's um, one thing that I've noticed across all types of uh, formats of media and content and and whatnot over the years. Oh, uh, recently, I should say, is that real throwback um, focus that people are having now, where that's the nostalgic feeling, where people can sort of go back and think about times gone by, and uh, no doubt, and I think you sort of touched on this a little bit before, but you know, writing it now and putting it out now, you'll have a lot of people, no doubt that are of a similar age and grew up in that similar sort of setting anywhere. Um, I mean, obviously sort of in that part of the country in the US, but probably anywhere in the world that's had a little bit of an influence from Western culture in the late 80s would be able to really connect with some of the things in this book and sort of even for them personally be thrown back to a time where they were a teenager and going through a lot of those some those coming of age moments and, and all the other things that are happening around that time. Yeah, I, I think so. And I, it, it was hard when I was writing this to strike a balance, really, that I wanted to get the reader kind of back in that sort of vanished world. But I also wanted to acknowledge that it was a long time ago and our world is different. Um, the very, very beginning of the book is really one of the only times in the book that I even reference the, the modern day because I talk about you know, the, the like the first paragraph of the book is about the way things were at the beginning of 1988. And there were still, you know, you could still smoke in restaurants and Bill Cosby was the biggest entertainer. And everyone thought, you know, Donald Trump was just a real estate guy. And, uh, you know, these things that are so different now. Um, and then that's kind of put aside and then you're back in really the headspace. And so many things have happened in our, our, worlds since then have that have changed our perspective uh anything you know the so many of the experiences of the 90s and then particularly you know 9-11 and things like that and and kind of the sort of the cynicism of the of the modern world that was it wasn't really wasn't like that in the 80s um and especially that part of the 80s it's like early 80s was also very different than late 80s and this book takes place in the late 80s early 80s was so overshadowed by the cold war and the threat of nuclear annihilation which had kind of receded by the time that the book takes place so there's kind of a difference there too it's just an interesting moment in time that i think uh, it's interesting to go back to it's i mean one of the questions i was going to ask you is you have a history now and history probably not being being a bit of a pun here but um you've got this career now in fiction but also in non-fiction with you know the work that you're doing as a historian and i was going to ask you about that balance between the worlds because you know sometimes people are defined by a particular type of writing um and where their focus lies and for you you've you've carved out you know a career now in in both of these, and I'm I'm overgeneralizing it here, but as far as a nonfiction and a fiction world, you've really carved it out. But even as you framed 
the beginning of this book, you're really sort of mapping it out as a, as a bit of a historical record, even though it's a fictional story. Yeah, and that was exactly the intent. Um, one of the things that's so interesting, I, th- I mean, you know, my career and what I do is continually evolving. Um, and then one, you know, one of the things that I'm doing now is I really am trying to bring sort of my historical uh, view into the modern world and into part- particularly understanding what's happening now in our world. Uh, one of the things that I'm now getting involved in a lot is public speaking. And I'm billing myself kind of as the historian who sees the future because there are certain eras in history and certain particularly transitions on really a societal level throughout history that when I got my historical training, I was sort of trained to see. And you can kind of start to see sort of the arc of how history changes and then looking at what's happening now in the in the modern world, it's so obvious to me, at least having had that training, just what a huge change is occurring in our world right now. It's it's driven primarily by climate change, but it's bigger than that because there's there are economic changes and our political system is changing and kind of the way the world thinks about itself is changing. And it's changing on a scale that you only see in the largest type of historical transitions. And I'm talking about, you know, not just 30 years or whatever, but just, you know, very broad uh, strokes of history. So really what I've kind of come to see, to, to, to understand is that I can see these things and many people can't. And it would be nice to sort of share my vision of how I see history unfolding now and to be able to come at it and my evidence for, you know, how I see the fact that the world is changing so dramatically is because I have seen similar changes in the past. So that's kind of where I'm going with it and kind of how I integrate, integrate it as well. Um, so it's, it's kind of, kind of a long answer, but, but also, um, you know, a lot of the fictional worlds that I create really do stem from real places and real events that I think, uh, stories are such a, a great way to revisit the past in, in a way that makes it real to people. And I think that's a really valuable talent to be able to, to show people and to put people back in the headspace of the past, whether it's 1988 or whether it's the middle ages or, you know, whatever, um, because you start to think about the commonalities between things you see there and then what's happening in, in the modern world. I think it's especially where we sit now, um, as a race of people um, and with the, that exponential race of technology and progress and all these things happening, um, I think for your everyday person, most people are focused on not even in the present. They're looking at the the next day, the next week and the next step mm-hmm. um, towards the future. And I think there's Look, I think it's changing, um, but I think a lot of people still are fixated on what's ahead rather than what's happened in the past. And You've you've just said this, but I think um, a thing that really needs to be emphasised is that I know a lot of people, and I've certainly been like this um, years gone by, especially going through school, where you, the question the questions are raised about history, and you think, well, why do I need to learn about the past? Because you know the past is already done; it's 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 in the dust, and and we need to be moving forward. I need to learn how to take that next step forward. But 
in order to move forward properly and have vision, you need to be able to see what's happened in the past because there's so many patterns and and mm-hmm. re- repeated events and, and changes and it's not as um, – I'm trying to think of the word. It's not as spontaneous as we think it is. Um, things mm-hmm. tend to happen in a sequence of events. So, um, you know, to be able to really uh, grasp the future and, and take advantage of it and also be flexible and move with the, with whatever the the new events coming along, you need to really sort of have a great understanding of what's what's come before you. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And in fact, I'm devoting a lot of thinking to that uh, that exact lesson, I'm I'm putting together notes uh, for another a book, a nonfiction book that's going to tie in with some of the messages that I'm uh, bringing to corp- particularly corporate audiences. But um, the idea of and it's such a cliche when people say, "Well, history repeats itself," but there's a there's a famous quote that's much better than that, which is, "History doesn't really repeat itself, but it often rhymes." Mm. So um, I'm putting together notes for a a book about that and talking about some historical events that are likely to recur or likely to kind of uh, patterns of events that um, may recur in the future um, and talking and finding things in the past that we can draw lessons from one of the uh, lessons that I've been very interested in lately, and I'm I'm working into some of my uh, my speaking presentations, is specifically for uh, business audiences, is about uh, Pan Am, Pan American World Airways. Um, ironically, that's one of the things I mention on the very first page of Jake's eighty eight as to you know how different the past was. Pan Am was still flying in nineteen eighty eight, mm. uh, and it was one of the biggest. I mean, it was it was like. America's legacy carrier, you know, it was one of the biggest airlines in the world and it was a cultural icon and a business icon and the, you know, the blue meatball logo that you would see mm-hmm. everywhere. And uh, Pan Am went bankrupt in 1991. And it was a surprise to many people because this was such a well-known company and they seemed to have to, you know, span the world with their, uh, their activities and their advertising and everything. But it's so poignant, the story of of that company, because they really went under because they couldn't change and and they could not. Their entire business model was based on prestige. It was based on, you know, we were the first American carrier to fly overseas and we were flying the Pan Am Clipper in 1935 and we were – you know, doing all of these things and it was really based on prestige and they didn't understand when the world changed and no one started to care about what they were doing in 1935 or 1958. Um, they also predicted that basically air, uh, the number of passengers traveling by air would increase steadily year after year, basically forever. They, you know, they thought that the, the golden age of air travel, the 1960s, was going to continue forever. They built that into their business planning and they were wrong. And I think that lesson is so poignant, particularly if you if business people hear that lesson from history about how this great company, this world icon property. I mean, they owned the biggest building on Fifth Avenue in New York City and they were gone in, in just you know a very short period of time. So pulling those kind of lessons, historical lessons, and then showing like, this is what we can learn from that lesson. This is, you know, how we can prepare, how you have to think about change and how the world is changing. And you're going to have to embrace that change because if you try to fight it, you're going to go under. 
So those lessons, I think, are enormously valuable for, for people today, particularly when we have the prospect of so many things changing fundamentally with our economy, with climate change being, you know, forcing us to, uh, you know, think about how to make our entire civilization more sustainable. Those are big changes. And I think looking to the past to see how to deal with those, that's my go-to, uh, uh, you know, strategy, but, but not a lot of people are thinking in those terms. So that's why I find that interesting. I think, I think we could talk for hours just on this topic alone, cause it's so fascinating and it, and it, it hits people on a number of different levels, obviously from the corporate world. And I've, I've certainly seen, and I'm sure it's, uh, it's, it's the same in the, in the U S but here in Australia, a lot of businesses, are um, they're incentivizing employees differently these days to even just a couple of years ago where, um, they're really pushing staff to be uh, more innovative, um, focus on initiatives and efficiencies and thinking outside the box and not just falling into the process and the policy that's been in place for the last, in some cases, several decades. And mm -hmm. because of such dramatic change in all these individual markets in these industries, people have to be encouraged to be looking outside the box, show flexibility. Um, EQ is so much more important than it's ever been in the past. And if anything, um, sometimes even overrides uh, expertise and qualifications because you need that, that cultural fit within, within teams. Um, so from the corporate world, I mean, I've certainly seen um, aspects of that uh, here in Australia, and I'm sure it's the same in the US, but even on in other uh, worlds where, like from a music point of view, where I've got a lot of um, history in is people, musicians are having to um, completely change the way that they're identified or what the, the way that they've, um, it's been romanticized years gone by. I mean, we we're all little entrepreneurs now. We, we're, we're jack of all trades. We're, we're picking up all these additional skill sets and we have, we have to be fluid in mind and really flexible um, to be able to handle all these changes and the people that are stuck in the past with the old I mean the the burnt out conversation of you know people not buying music anymore and CDs and blah 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 those people that are still stuck in in these old arguments are just getting uh, left behind in the dust and so the people that are succeeding and across the board with all these different industries, uh, the people that are willing to be flexible, um, look for the changes, look for the patterns and embrace um, whatever those shifts are going to be and not uh, not be married to something that's comfortable because uh, it, it doesn't last forever. Yeah, that, that's that's exactly right. Uh, and the, the, the topic of the music industry, that's very interesting. I don't know if you've seen... Um, it was a documentary that came out fairly recently about the rise and fall of Tower Records. No, I haven't um, seen it. It's I, I don't I don't I can't remember the the exact name of the documentary, but uh, it, it's so fascinating because it talks about really that same thing about and Tower Records was one. Of, here's another you know great lesson from the past for business. Mm. They you know they kind of built in many ways the the music industry and the kind of the the, the pop culture music sort of world that was going around when, you know, the, 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 when I was in high school uh, and many others, uh, you know, growing up in the years after, I mean, we used to go to Tower Records. There was one in the mall and you would, you know, buy tapes in my day and then you would buy CDs and the, they had this business model about selling CDs. And then in, it wasn't even, 
it's like it's like the Napster era, which kind of killed off that model, that business model of the music industry, was really sort of an answer to the fact that CDs were getting so much more expensive uh, at the you know at the end of the '90s, and people were starting to to sort of rebel against that. And then Napster comes in as an alternative to that and changes the world. Um, so uh, you're right that it's like the entrepreneurial spirit. I mean, whether whether we're entrepreneurs or not, we kind of have to think like them mm. because that's the only way that we can navigate the, the change that is uh, coming, that is really sweeping everything. So, and, and you're right that those people who are stuck in the past are at a competitive disadvantage in almost everything. Uh, I talk about this in my, in my climate change work where the, you know, people say, well, is, I mean, how can we give up fossil fuels and that kind of thing? Well, I mean, the business model of an oil company selling, you know, fuels for uh, trucks or planes or, you know, what I mean, that's a 19th century business model where you control the supply and you sell the physical supply. And the deal with renewables is it's not about supply. It's about technology. Mm. It's about, you know, I mean, the supply of wind power or solar power or whatever is unlimited if you're going to sell uh, power in a, a climate changed future, what you're selling is technology to access freely available power. Right. So it's like the competitors for ExxonMobil and BP are not Texaco and Shell and the other oil companies. The competitor ExxonMobil's competitors are Apple and Google because they're in the technology business. And if you're still stuck in that 19th century business model, it, you're just going to be, there's no way out of that box unless you embrace a completely different model. So I think you're absolutely right there. It's a big, it's a, I mean, it's a hot topic globally, um, but especially in Australia, I think um, uh, definitely an embarrassing thing to say, but um, we're, we're certainly behind the times when it comes to um, these types of conversations and this type of progress, because, uh, we're heavily reliant on on fossil fuels. We've got a massive mining industry, and um, you know politically, we're we're uh, we're certainly funded by a lot of these uh, giants that are still there, and they're clinging on for dear life. And so they're trying whatever whatever they can uh, to maintain this this old model. And eventually, I mean, it's just there's going to be no choice. You move forward no matter what. But um, it's just one of those things where it's so at least from from many people's point of view, um, it seems so clear as to the benefits and and the uh, well the benefits of, of moving forward in in this in this type of format and embracing these changes. But um, I guess it's for some people it's it's a bit more of a short term mentality. And what can I do for my own agenda while you know I I hold this role in in this particular industry or uh, while I hold this position in in Parliament. Um, and and after after I've gone and moved on, then it doesn't really matter. So there's a lot of I guess short term mm -hmm. personal agendas which are overriding a lot of that progress. But um, it's a big hot topic here in Australia. We've we've got uh, we've got so much energy at our fingertips as far as renewable energy, um, especially given the temperature it is today. We've certainly got, yeah. we've got a lot of <laughs> options, um, and it's just crazy that we're 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 stuck we're stuck in these old models. But I mean, it's it's like it's like that. Um, uh, that uh, um, that concept of shifting or steering a, a massive ship, and you just need to steer it like one degree um, across, and then eventually 
you'll be in a dramatically different place, but you, you need to take these small steps. So maybe it's just something that um, we have to allow time as well, but um, I don't know how much time we have. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's worrisome. Uh, I mean, I think there is hope. Um, it, it, while you were talking, I was thinking of uh, on my, my business site, I wrote a blog. Oh, this was at least a year ago about um, one of the, uh, one of the Star Trek movies kind of impl- almost implicitly deals with some of these types of uh, uh, themes. It's the one it's uh, number six, where the, uh, the Federation is making peace with the Klingons and there's a great line uh, in that in that movie, and and it's it's fitting that this was the last of the films that was made with the original cast. So they're all you know they're all old and gray, and <laughs> William Shatner's got a you know his toupee looks like a Brillo pad, and you know, <laughs> this this kind of thing. But it's like there's a great line where he's meeting the Klingon ambassador, who's also played by David Warner, who is a great character actor. But uh, David Warner says to the Captain Kirk character, he says, if there is to be a brave new world, it's our generation that's going to have the hardest time living in it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so true. And we see that, I mean, if you apply that lesson to climate change, to really any of the shifts that are going on in the world right now, you see that kind of that older generation is kind of clinging on almost out of a kind of a psychological fear of change. Mm-hmm. Whereas you see the younger generations, the millennials and the post-millennials are really embracing the change um, in, in a way that, that the older generations find terrifying. And, and I find that so, such an interesting dynamic as well, because we're on the shift. And again, looking back at history, we're on the shift of, of a, a, cha- a kind of a generational shift of control in society. We saw this. Uh, during World War II, um, where the parents of what, I I don't like the term the greatest generation, but that's unfortunately what is stuck. (laughs) You know, the parents of those those, um, kids, uh, often called the silent generation or whatever, but they were very much uh, into, uh, you know, tradition and family and, you know, you know, you kind of endure silently what you do and, and you sort of take what's your lot and they were battered by the depression and various other things. And then their kids, when they became, you know, 20, suddenly were fighting world war two and they have to go out and they have to, you know, do the accomplish this, this incredibly hard, incredibly difficult thing and make all these sacrifices. And it's like the, the, kind of the generational center of gravity of the Western world shifted in those years to a younger generation during those World War II years. And I think that's, we're on the verge of that same kind of shift today. Uh, We're already seeing it in so many different ways. Uh, Right now, I've been involved in some of my consulting work with a an organization here in the U.S. called Our Children's Trust, which is a nonprofit that represents a number of uh, kids, youth, all under 21, who are suing the federal government for causing climate change, basically. Mm, wow. And there's a huge kind of activism by particularly the younger generation, people who are saying, look, we're, you know, we're going to be living with this much longer than anyone else is, and we have to do something. And it's, you know, it's uh, that idea is now spreading out you see it all over the world. This uh, girl, 15 year old girl who's been in the news lately, Greta Thunberg, who, who said at the UN meeting, you know, basically gave them that message that, look, you know, 
we're taking control because you guys have screwed it up and there's no time anymore. So step aside and, you know, let somebody else have a shot at it. And I think that's such an interesting shift in, in just a historical sense that, that I find really fascinating. Yeah, I can I can see that globally. We've certainly had a number of instances over even the last six to twelve months where um, a lot of younger people have just stood up and made these big public uh, demonstrations to to push for change on a whole range of different uh, different issues. And it's very interesting as um, and I use this word um, in a in a, a somewhat positive way, but as a spectator, just to observe and just and just to see what's going on. Um, how that is interpreted by different uh, age groups. And so, um, you know, that, that term that's often gets thrown around quite a bit, but the baby boomer gen- generation, there's this, uh, this friction between, you know, the stereotypical baby, baby boomers and the stereotypical millennials. And, and it's very interesting even, and I think the media sort of really grasps onto this and, and runs with it and kicks, mm-hmm. it and kicks it to death. But um, it's very, very interesting to see, us as people um, going through this period at the moment where there is just a lot of transition, a lot of changes, a lot of shifts, and um, and just watching people um, really bring their, op- their opinions to light. Um, I think social media is a fantastic way to um, exchange ideas um, in a very fluid way, but it's all, it also uh, brings a lot of crap to the surface as well. Um, yeah. So it's amazing <laughs> to see what people think um, when these topics uh, come up, and it's just... Um, it's a very interesting way to observe human behavior and people's own individual agendas and why people believe certain things. And, and a lot of it's very, um, it's, it's based on the individual rather than a collective um, approach. So um, I, I think um, we're going to have uh, quite, a, quite a bit more of this uh, moving forward into the future as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, going back to what we said before about sort of focusing or looking into the past and seeing these patterns and, and, uh, and as you said before, that quote of, um, history rhyming, um, one of your podcasts, cause I know you've got a couple actually, but, um, one in particular, the second decade podcast, um, you're focusing on this one period of time, which I thought was really interesting. And, um, and I'm, I'm curious to know why this period in particular, but it's, uh, the 1810s, I believe, um, mm-hmm. and there seems to be a lot going on at this period of time. Why, why did you focus on this period of all the periods that I guess in recent history? Well, for, I did, did that for a couple of reasons. Um, I started second decade, uh, when I was still working on my, uh, PhD and my PhD dissertation topic involved, uh, something called the year without summer, which I, 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 have mentioned a couple of times on the podcast. This is in fact how I got interested in climate change. It was through through my historical work. And basically what happened was in 1815, there was the eruption of a very, very large volcano. It was called Tambora, which is in what's now Indonesia. Not that many people have heard of it, uh, but Tambora was the largest volcanic eruption in recorded history. Um, it was 10 times more powerful than Krakatoa, which happened at the end of the 19th century and about a hundred times more powerful than Mount St. Helens in 1980. And basically what it did was it shrouded the earth in a, uh, a blanket of volcanic dust, principally sulfur dioxide and caused a large scale, short term, uh, global cooling. So the effects were very bizarre. There were 
um, snowstorms in July in the Northern Hemisphere. There were massive animal die-offs and birds dropped out of the sky and crop failures. And there were food riots in Europe. And uh, there was ice in South Africa and you know, all these really strange effects. And I was very interested when I began my historical study. Um, I didn't even intend really to focus on environmental history. That's really kind of what it is. But I was very interested in that historians had not really dealt with that event very, very well. It was mostly scientists who were interested in the volcano and the, you know, the, the dust and the effect on the atmosphere and that kind of thing. So I started working on that as my dissertation. And I realized just how many connections that event had and how deeply I had to get into the headspace of what it was like in that time to figure out what people thought about those events. You know, how, I mean, it's, it, you're plowing your field in Massachusetts, it's June and it's snowing. <laughs> and you're like, well, I mean, what would you think about that? I mean, you, it's like, you, you don't, you don't, we don't have weather prediction and climate models and all these things that we have today. And, you know, you're sitting there, it's 1816 and you're, you, you're, you have to feed your family and you're plowing your field and it's snowing. And you're like, you know, what is going on? So I was so interested in what people, like the knowledge they had to, to try to deal with those kinds of bizarre things and what they might have thought of. And that got me into where their knowledge came from, particularly in the United States and in, in kind of rural areas. It came from farmers' almanacs, which were sort of like a mix between pop culture and astrology and old wives' tales and things <laughs> like that. So it was just such a fascinating uh, parallel on, on all of these levels. And then you, I got into stuff like, well, then, then I discovered that it wasn't just this one eruption in 1815. There had been an earlier eruption in the year 1809. And we don't know exactly which volcano that is because it hasn't been identified in the historical record. But we know it happened because modern scientists studying, guess what, climate change, mm. have found in ice cores drilled in at both poles, both in Greenland and Antarctica, they have ice cores are like they're they're like tree ring or they're like geologic strata where you can identify various things in them and they found a layer of volcanic ash predating the tambora eruption mm. so what happened was there was some other volcano somewhere in the tropical part of the world that had like kind of pushed the world's climate to almost the breaking point. And then Tambora came along and really forced it over the edge. And there was really kind of a 10 year period from about 1809 to 1819, where temperatures were down and there were a lot of weather events, a lot of weather anomalies. And I started looking into what, what some of the other effects of that. Uh, one of my early episodes of second decade is comes from a, a chapter of my uh, dissertation and it it's uh it was called the last frost fair and it was such a fascinating story this happened actually before tambora but uh frost fairs their tradition goes back to um most this is in england uh, particularly in london and what would happen is when the thames would freeze there would be like an open air carnival down on the ice on the on the tent. So mm. you would have things like there'd be food booths down there and they would have games and, you know, animals and like circus performers. And they'd have uh, there were brothels down there and like all of the like the city would kind of come to a halt and everyone would go party on the ice 
on the frozen Thames for however long it was stable. And then they, then the ice would break up and they'd go back to their, you go back to their jobs. And it's such a fascinating story. And the very last ice uh, frost fair that ever occurred was in 1814. Uh, and most people think that it's because you know, global warming came about and the Thames doesn't freeze anymore. Actually what happened, I mean, global warming certainly doesn't, doesn't help. But what actually happened was in 1831, they tore down the old London, London Bridge, and the new London Bridge changed the, uh, the hydrodynamics of the Thames so it couldn't freeze anymore. But that story about the frost fair and what it was, I had to go back into newspaper articles and from that week, and you know there was a, a book that was published that actually dragged a printing press down there on the ice and uh, this enterprising printer published this like souvenir book of you know the great freeze of 1814 and it was such a fascinating story so it's like i started when i did my research i started to get into all this stuff so i i started thinking about doing a podcast and i'm like well yeah it'd be great to have a, a historical podcast and i've got all of this stuff from my dissertation research that I've had to leave, so to speak, on the cutting room floor, wouldn't it be great to use that material? So I started to come up with uh, episode ideas, and then it just kind of snowballed from there, no pun intended. But um, it, it was there were just so many things about the decade, and it was a decade where there was a global war going on during the, at least the first half of that decade, mm. the, the, the second half of the Napoleonic Wars. Yep. You know, that was a huge world changing event. And so few, even in history, you don't really see, you know, the 18 teens or that period in the early 19th century talked about as like a real change period. But, uh, and people have responded to that. that I, that's what I hear from so many fans of the podcast. It's like, gee, you know, this is stuff I'd never heard of before. And wow, it really is important. So I think that's that's been the fun of it is being able to bring that. Um, you know, that kind of story to, to people in a way that they haven't really heard before. It's interesting to see how people interpret events. And as you said before, people at that time didn't have access to this free-flowing uh, source of information from all sorts of different uh, resources. It was it was just a case of what was at your immediate uh, location, you know, your your local community, even if you had one. And, and you know, it would, it would take a long time for any new information to, to come to light. And it was just a completely different era. And, you know, age spans would have been uh, far less than what they are now as well. So people's lives and the way that they interpret things um, is just so dramatically different. And obviously there would be certain things that remain the same as far as basic human behaviours. But um, I think just the way that people people read into things and, and, and the reasons behind uh, these, these events um, is, is really fascinating. And even now, like it, you, you almost scratch your head when you see the way that people interpret uh, events happening now, where you think, how can you think these particular things or have these beliefs or whatever it might be when you've got so much information at your fingertips. And it's almost like it's gone from one extreme to the other where you had virtually no information and it was basically word of mouth and and uh, coming up with all these myths and wise tales and things like that. And now we're at this other end of the spectrum where we've got almost too much information where people, and, and, and I won't get into it, but you know that fake news culture that's come into play in the last few years as well, and people don't know what to think. And so... It's almost like we're we're creating our own in the t interpretations of things because there's just almost too much information to take in. 
Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Um, and there, I, there is kind of a turning away, I think, particularly in the last couple of years, away from tradition, you know, traditional authority of knowledge, scientists or experts or historians or mm. whatever. Um, I noticed this, uh, one of my, it's, it's not really my primary outlet, but uh, I do have a YouTube channel. Mm. And uh, some of my uh, most at least viewed videos are they're actually adaptations of a blog series I did about the um, mystery. It's not really much of a mystery, but uh, there's a, an island up in Nova Scotia called Oak Island where there's supposedly been treasure buried there and people have been looking for buried treasure on this island for 150 years. And it, it surfaces a lot in books about kind of woo history type topics and it you know, you see it in chapter as a chapter in books on Loch Ness monster and Bigfoot and things like that. And there's uh, uh, a terrible uh, History Channel reality show based about around trying to find treasure on this island. Um, I was actually interested in this legend a number of years ago, at, long before the TV series. But um, so I, as uh, in my blogs and then also uh, the videos that I that I made of them, I kind of set out the historical and particularly the logical case for why why there it's clear that there really is no treasure there that it was it was just all all kind of a hoax uh but the there's a certain kind of minority of very vo very vocal minority of believers in the legend who uh are are pretty uh pretty wedded to the idea that there there must be something down there and but it, it all comes from a place of kind of almost an emotional attachment to the idea, mm. you know, the, the very romantic idea of buried treasure, but there's not really any engagement with, you know, well, why isn't there anything in the historical record about this? And, you know, why is this happening? And you've never found anything. And people really aren't as interested in those questions uh, as they are in defending sort of a, a, a belief that they've come up with on their own or from a limited number of sources that are interested in kind of telling them what they want to hear. And that's unfortunately much more common. You, know, fake, you mentioned fake news. Well, fake history is a huge problem, mm. huge problem. Uh, and it's it's kind of more pernicious, really, than – I mean, fake news is where it starts, but it, it's harder to eradicate. Um, I've done a number of blog articles on, on various things. Um, some people, and again, you know, not historians, people who, who haven't really uh, done a lot of reading in history will often – take a saying like you know the 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 victors write the history and they'll take that a little bit too literally into the belief that certain things can be faked in history very easily um and uh or that the past is very manipulative or, or that you know historians don't really they just kind of rely upon the word of mouth of some previous historian or it was in a book or something and they take that as gospel truth um but there really is a a historical method, a rigorous historical method that can we really can know in most cases what happened in the past. It's not just a game of telephone, but a lot of people don't, I, th I think, don't understand that. And there are a lot of misconceptions about the past. Some of them are very popular misconceptions. Um, one of them is the idea, and again, History Channel is is really uh, one of the worst offenders at, at at creating this kind of this kind of thing. But the idea that uh, the Nazis were motivated by a cult or black magic or mm. things like that. Uh, and that's a very popular idea, but it's just, it's, 
it's complete nonsense. There's, there's nothing, there's nothing real about that idea. Um, and then you get into the kind of the more exotic ones that, you know, ancient aliens, uh, ideas and things like that, that people like to believe, but again, there's nothing. And we can demonstrate with fairly good, uh, you know, specificity that those things never happened, but people like to believe certain narratives and facts don't really often make as much of an impression as they probably should. Um, and so that's something that I've noticed in the last couple of years, and particularly dealing with history. If you deal, if you deal with the public on history, you're going to get these topics uh, come up. I, you know, lots of questions about well, ancient aliens, and you know, this or that, or you know, wasn't you know, this a conspiracy, or you know. Um, so you, I mean, you do have to deal with that when you do history in, in any kind of public forum. On a slight, slightly different take on that, um, because interpretation of, of events is, is a big thing. And I think, and this is coming from, I'll put my hand up, one of those people in the general public that's not a historian. Um, so it's, you know, my, my views on things are going to be very different to somebody who's qualified and has the expertise and, and knowledge. But one thing that I sort of approach these things with is that there, there's, a, there's a foundation of truth that happens and there's no negotiation around that. Certain things happen along the way and they're, they're, they're place marked and and they're they're tried and true but it's the interpretation of the events which becomes something very different and that's where a lot of the the debate comes into play um a really interesting one that i've seen is is from you know just from the second world wars and you know the atomic bomb and all these massive events that that occurred that are still ingrained into our minds and our history especially when we've still got um you know family members and, and, and some generations that are still with us and are still passing on these opinions and stories of what's happened. But depending on where you go in the world, um, that interpretation of those events is, is quite different. Um, you know, from the, the American narrative of, of, of the decisions that were made in the second world war versus, um, I've been to Hiroshima and I've gone to the, the, the peace uh, memorial park and to their museum and I've seen their atomic, um, I can't remember the exact uh, word uh, that they, they refer to it as, but their museum there about the atomic bomb and, and everything that mm-hmm. occurred. And their interpretation of the events um, is, is, is different. Um, you know, they're on the receiving end of it all and their message um, is, is quite different. And then I think one of your videos, um, it's not about the atomic bomb, but just about, you know, events that happened in the Second World War, um, I think it's Stalingrad, um, where, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. and I was, I was on, on going through your video and you had you know, Google, uh, Google maps and you were sort of doing this virtual tour around the park and their memorials and their, and their museums and the way that they're interpreting the war from their end is going to be different again. So it's, it's almost like there's this factual element to everything. All these things occur and there shouldn't be any negotiation around it, but I think the, that debate comes back into depending on which side of the fence you you were on, um, that interpretation of what happened is different, and then that's where things become quite cloudy um, in relation to the actual factual events that did occur. Oh yeah, I, I agree, and and in a, in a sense, that's kind of the fun of history is it's not finding out the facts; it, it's trying to put them into context and figuring out you know why something happened. Mm. Uh, and it's not even really, I mean, you're certainly right that, that the interpretations of, of events are different depending on, you know, what country you live in and what cultural background you come from. But it's also, those things are also contested even within cultures and within 
uh, societies. And you mentioned the the atomic bomb, and and I think that debate, in at least as it's played out mostly in American uh, culture, is is largely divorced from the historical facts of what's going on. You know, we debate. I I, I wrote a book. Um, it hasn't come out yet, but I co-wrote. Uh, a book called Eyes of War. My co-author is uh, uh, Lucas Erickson, who's also a historian. And it focuses on uh, the Pacific War, but also kind of the long tale, the long memory of the Pacific War uh, in American consciousness. And there's a scene in that book that's taken from you know, a million dinner tables uh, across America where you know people are arguing, well, should we have dropped the atomic bomb on, on Hiroshima and Nagasaki? And you have the usual argument. It's like, well, we would have to invade Japan otherwise, and it saved more lives than it's, you know, and like that debate is so airtight, kind of sealed off from the reality of, of what was going on back then. I mean, the reality, of course, is that there really wasn't that much of a debate at the time. It was kind of like, the way the best way to describe it is like the creation of the atomic bomb set the train going down a certain track mm. and there were a number of switches that could have been thrown to shift the train onto another track but unless someone deliberately s triggered one of those switches the train was going to continue in that direction and and that's really more like what the atom bomb decision was about but yet it also had so many other things factoring into it the american experience at the battle of okinawa which has been that that's mostly what eyes of war is about and there's a lot of i had to do a tremendous amount of uh research uh because there's a lot of combat scenes in the book that take place at okinawa and i got a, a, a bit of ptsd from from researching that stuff uh but even americans have mostly forgotten about that i mean people say okinawa what is that you know uh, so even within societies i think there's are these differing interpretations um at, at stalingrad that's a, uh, one of the the uh places that i the videos that uh appear on my youtube channel many of them the kind of the basis of them uh have been classes that i've taught i, I teach online history classes mm. and last winter i did a eight-week session on world war ii and it's that geohistory what i call geohistory where i show you through google earth and uh you know, the various online tools where the things happened and explain sort of the, the context of them. The ones in the Soviet Union, because I did a unit, of course, on if you talk about World War II, you have to talk about the, the Russian involvement in it. And that is such a different perspective than we have in the West. And it was so, so fascinating because of that different perspective. I mean, Stalingrad was just a, a unbelievable event. I mean, it was just so horrendous on a scale that in the West, we can't really, you know, we can't really understand. And you, you know, you go there and you see like today, if you go on Google Earth, you'll see like the military park that I was in and there's still like a building that's been preserved and it was all blasted out and I never rebuilt it and things like that. Um, but then you also see the a lot of the commemoration mm. that was done, particularly in the Soviet era, after the war was over, they built, uh, in fact, on a hill outside of Stalingrad. This wasn't in my video, but um, in the class, I took one of the locations was there's a hill outside of Stalingrad where I think it's the largest statue of a woman in the world, even larger than the Statue of Liberty. Yeah, I'm, it, I'm, it, I'm obsessed with this statue. This is this I saw the statue years ago. Um, 
and oh. it's it's on my bucket list of places to visit because it is just incredible the size of this uh, this monument. Yeah, it's called like the 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 Great Motherland or something mm. to that effect. Um, but it, it's amazing because that site and then the, like the museums and the things like that are so steeped in the Soviet way of remembering what Stalin or interpreting what Stalingrad and what the war was about. Mm. And it's so I mean, you see just I mean, just the way the sculpture is created is this very kind of communist post-war I mean, it's almost ideological view of art and of commemoration and of memory. Uh, I mean, memory is another topic. Historical memory and personal memory is another topic I'm uh, intensely interested in. That was the subject of my time and memory, the subject of my previous book, Valley of Forever. But you know, those questions are so fascinating because it's like you're right that there is there is a factual basis to the past. You know, we know this event happened and that event happened, but the connective tissue between those events is sometimes it's so dependent on how you remember it and how you interpret it. Um, and I find that so fascinating in, in history as well. Is there going back to your writing and with the number of books? Because I think you've I think you've written about seven books to date, as far as from fictional a fictional point of view. Um, but is there something that ties in all of these pieces, all these projects, and these these books that you've you've put out over the years? Is there is there a, not a common theme, but I guess a, a common thought that you have? I mean, these fascinations about memory and, and things in the past and patterns and human behavior. Are, are these things that are, I guess, reoccurring sort of things that you draw upon with each of these books, even though they might seem vastly different to each other? Well, I think the, the theme of time is is probably the the element that binds most of them together and, and this is this is why I, I think that the book that uh, I'm most proud of is Valley of Forever because it, it is really about the nature of time and what is time does time exist what you know what does the past really mean what does memory mean I've always been fascinated by those questions in my own life um, and some of them stem and, and they reach in a number of different directions. Um, there's a an article. I did an article on my blog a couple of years ago, but it was it came out of something that I did related to my study in environmental history when I was uh, still in the PhD program. But I, and again, I, this goes in so many directions. Uh, this ties a little bit into into Jake's eighty eight when um, our family. Uh, my my father was in the military career Air Force officer. And so we moved around a lot. And when I was 11, that's when we moved to Omaha, Nebraska, which is the the sort of proto setting of, of Jake's 88. But one of my, uh, and we had lived in places like California and Arizona and Texas and places like that, where there were generally warm places. And, and suddenly we're in the, you know, the high Midwest where the winters are very harsh. There's a lot of snow. It's very cold. And you know, that's kind of hard to get used to, especially when you're 11 and you've you know, lived in California and places like that all your life. So uh, I remember the first autumn that we were there, um, I was 11 and there was a snowstorm. This was the first snow that I had ever seen, but it was this blizzard that occurred. And it was, I, I vaguely recall it was over Thanksgiving weekend. But I specifically, there was, I remember a disjointed, 
images and memories of that event, but I remember there was uh, particularly a, an image that I recall. We had a we had a, a house that had one of those uh, patio those glass patio slider doors, and I remember seeing this was late at night during the storm and seeing these like kind of ice clumps sort of uh, you know streaming down the the patio the glass door. Uh, in the middle of this ice storm. And and I, I have no idea why, but that image was so vivid in my memory. Um, and it's like, I, I always knew, you know, yeah, that was the storm that we had when we first got there and things like that. Um, but I became very interested when I, especially when I was studying environmental history about how, okay, well, let's drill into that event and see how much, I, how much of it that I remember accurately and what the real story was. So, I did kind of a mini research project where I got, I ordered microfilms of the, the Omaha newspaper from that, you know, that time. And I looked at weather records and other things to find out exactly when the storm hit and you know, where it came from and that kind of thing. And learned so much about really kind of my own past just by looking at the documentary historical record. So, and it was so interesting. I had a page of notes where I, I was able to, you know, write down some of my recollections. I'm like, oh, I remember that. Okay, well, that that had to have happened on, you know, the the Friday of that weekend because I found a newspaper source that said this, and well, I remember this report on the on the news, and that they were reporting on this, and so putting it together into a picture that sort of. Uh, is rooted in documentary history, but yet it's still, my memories exist, sometimes accurately, sometimes not. And there's almost a, a, a differing conception of, of that event in my own mind than what happened in real life. So I was so interested, what does that mean? You know, what is, if there's a difference between what really happened and the way you imagine something happening, you know, what, what's the, how do you define that difference and what more could exist in the gap between those two perceptions? So that's really kind of what Valley of Forever is about. It's, it, it's about, um, there's a kind of a bookend uh, story where it takes place. Most of the, most of the book takes place on a cruise ship that is uh, at anchor because they've been hit by a norovirus outbreak and so they're, the cruise ship is quarantined off the Bahamas and they're just kind of sitting there and the passengers are forbidden to leave their rooms. And so, so many of them are kind of trapped in their rooms and time kind of starts to have no meaning because it's just this continuum of being trapped on this ship cut off from the outside world. And then the ship catches fire and there's a sense that it happened before, but we're not sure when or in what circumstances and people start remembering things from their past and, uh, it all kind of you know throws that that all that kind of stuff together in, in the mix, and I've just been always so fascinated by if you remember something in the past, is it like kind of reliving it again? And are there you know getting back to the to the concept of of, of history rhyming? Mm. Is is there's a, a you know philosophical debate: is time linear or is it cyclical? Well, I think you can make an argument that it's actually a spiral that it's sort of like both. It's kind of like a, it's a line, but it's sort of also a circle that kind of loops back on itself. And that's where you see commonalities in the past and the present to, uh, you know, to events that happen again. So the book is full of 
scenes that recur or people will say a line and then a couple of chapters later you see that same line spoken by someone else 25 years earlier in a different circumstance and you know things like that um so that's what i find so interesting and that kind of gets into the more philosophical angle mm. of you know what is the past and what is memory uh, which is much less reliant on i mean you would think i would be so you know, firmly rooted in documentary history, and I am, but there's also this other kind of world to it that I think really does get into a lot of spiritual dimensions. Do you, have you found that over the years of, you know, putting all this work together and doing all these different things that you really, I mean, have you found that you've developed a more, more of an awareness of yourself and even being, you've, your own thoughts and your beliefs and, and everything has been challenged along the way. Has this been like a real sort of character building journey for yourself? I mean, because I'm just, even just listening to you describe a lot of this, I'm getting thrown back to to my early childhood memories and I'm thinking about how I form those memories and I'm thinking that a lot of the stuff might actually come from photographs ra rather than physical events mm -hmm. and me remembering those events. And so then that throws I mean, that's, that's a rabbit hole in itself, but mm -hmm. it's um, no doubt you focusing on a lot of this stuff over the years, you would have been personally challenged with a lot of the things that you've retained. Yeah. And, and I mean, it has been a, a, a spiritual journey mm -hmm. uh, of really kind of immense proportions. Um, I, I, I used to be an atheist for most of my life. And uh, in the last four years I converted to Judaism. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I'm now a Jew and people, I tell people's people that story and their heads explode and they're like, Whoa, you know, I've never heard of that words. I mean, it's rare for atheists to convert to religion, mm. but um, it's usually the other way around. Yeah. So people are interested in that. And then people are like, well, why, you know, why Judaism? You know, it's like, that seems un, you know, kind of an unusual choice, but it really is about kind of the spirituality and the people have a hard time understanding this, but like what I believe as a Jew from a Jewish world perspective is not that different than what I believed as an atheist. Uh, I, I, because I believed, I have always believed that there is kind of a spiritual balance to the universe and a spiritual dimension and that things are interconnected. And really uh, in a sense, that's kind of God. Uh, it's not necessarily a, you know, Charlton Heston and a long beard type <laughs> of, you know, very literalist conception of, yeah. you know, what is God? But there's if if you if you ascribe that well okay there is this balance there is the universe there's interconnectedness well what if that has some form of consciousness and I couldn't rule that out and when I realized I couldn't rule that out I'm like okay well maybe I do believe in God and sort of the cosmology of Judaism was a closer fit to that kind of idea than other religions that that uh that are out there so that's kind of how i came to that but understand uh, you know exploring these kind of spiritual dimensions it really has been a journey throughout you know throughout my writing and figuring out well you know does time exist uh saint augustine you know the famous uh christian uh, theologian and historian from the the fifth century a.d wrote about that quite he he concluded that time did not exist uh, his idea, his where he got there was time is uncreated. Of course, he believed in a uh, you know literalist biblical view of the world. And if you look at Genesis, 
there's no mention of the creation of time. It just talks about the days, you know, on the, on the first day, God created this. And on the second day, God created this, but where did the days come from? That's, you know, time is uncreated. So, and he thought that there's nothing, because there is nothing in the world that was not created by God, therefore time must not exist because time is uncreated. I mean, I, so I don't agree with that, of course, but it's an inter- I mean, that question, the, which ties into a theological dimension and a spiritual dimension, you know, those kinds of questions uh, I found myself increasingly interested in as, as I uh, went through this work and, and these, you know, writing these books and things like that. With, I mean, you can stereotype a lot with, uh, and you probably would have had these feelings uh, being labeling yourself as an atheist in the past, but I think stereotypically with people that have um you know a religion that they that they practice and and a faith that they follow that um there's a potential uh there's there's not a lot of flexibility in the in in thought and there's a particular ideology that is fo- is followed and a pattern and and process and to, to use an unusual descriptive word there but um i think just the way that you've explained that now do you find that now finding this spiritual part of your life almost adds an additional tool to the kit where you've got more flexibility of thinking and you can look at things on a wider scale and you're far more fluid um, with the way that you interpret things because you've got this, it's almost like this unknown element there that almost sort of just adds this extra tone or extra filter to everything that's going on um, that just keeps, keeps your mind open. Absolutely. Uh, it, it is exactly like that. And, and sort of the, the discovery of a spiritual dimension as a tool for helping to understand the world, it was a huge leap forward for me. Mm. Um, I, I mean, I, I, and it's, it's awkward, too, because I really come from a rationalist background mm. and history is a very rationalist doctrine. It's like, can you prove, you know, it didn't happen until you can prove it happened in the past, you know, show me a document, show me a, you know, archeological evidence, show me this, show me that. I mean, this is, this is why the Oak Island thing doesn't make any sense to me because there's nothing there to, to say that this, you know, to prove that this happened, but yet squaring that also with a spiritual dimension of, well, things happened in the past. We, we can prove things happen, but that that's not always the, the whole story. It's like there, there's got to be something kind of more than that. Um, and exploring those questions, and it's like religion and spirituality is a realm that is cut off from, I mean, I, I, I don't believe that you can prove the existence of God. And I believe that it, it's, it's deliberate that you can't prove the existence of God, because that would, you know, if you could, that would turn God into a rationalist doctrine and not something spiritual. Mm. So there's you know trying to, to to branch out from you know from your your where you come from you know in an intellectual sense and then reach in these more spiritual directions it really does kind of open you up to thinking in different ways and and that's been a, a, a tremendous journey which has been very interesting and I think um, that would no doubt give you an additional. Um, ability to further understand human behavior as well because um, you know, you're able to see from from 
a different side of the fence now. You can you can see uh, people that have been in that uh, that spiritual realm and and have that uh, those experiences and and understand uh, motivations, um, you know, behaviors and decisions that are made, and especially going back into history because the way that people believed in their faith and and all these things were were amplified it was it was so much more real and so much more part of every everyday life um that you know going back to that that period of time which is on your podcast you know the way that people interpreted events would have been very different to the way that people or certain people interpret events now so um no doubt you having these uh, experiences in these uh, last few years have helped you sort of see through the eyes of some of these other people yeah absolutely and and thinking in kind of different different ways and and how different people would think under different circumstances i'm again kind of coming back to valley of forever where there's really two main characters in valley of forever there's uh well a heroine really uh jerusha and she's trapped aboard the ship and she's remembering her past and there's a an old love who she thinks has reappeared in her life and she's not sure her memories keep changing over what happened with him and that kind of thing. And then there's the there's the villain, the hero and the villain meet only once in the book. But there's the villain, uh, Ronan, who's actually insane. And uh, at the end of the book, he realizes that he's insane. And the things that he does make no sense if you come from a rationalist perspective, but yet they make perfect sense to him because he's nuts. <laughs> and, you know, thinking, just thinking in these terms where it's like, there is this, even, even to insanity, there's a structure that makes some, that has some kind of internal consistency mm. and thinking about that, like, well, how do you write a character who's, who's insane and who knows he's insane and does these things that none of us would, think make any sense at all but they fit into this worldview that's 180 degrees different than than the way most of us think uh so you know getting into and, and fiction is a great way to do that where you can test out different worldviews that that you don't necessarily have to live in <laughs> so i find that very interesting and i think that would also help with the audience as well because if they if you've got the label of, of fiction uh people sort of reserve judgment a lot more and a lot more open-minded and just take things as they come rather than it being uh, pushed as, you know, something that's historical or fact, nonfiction. Mm. And then people are already defensive because they're looking, they're looking for the argument. They're looking for something to challenge where a fictional um, account of something uh, that ties in a lot of different thoughts and, and, uh, and even, you know, as, as we've talked about before, um, falling back into actual historical events because it's because it's under that label of fiction, it just it it just I think it calms people down. <laughs> They're a lot more open minded to yeah. just taking it taking it on board and um, yeah, just and having a lot more flexibility. Yeah, that's true. Um, there are some limitations even in fiction. Um, Valley of Forever is is kind of controversial because there's uh, there's some people who really really love it and there it's it's a very unconventional book, mm. and there's others who just don't get it and they're like, well, okay, well the, wait the because one of the things, like, you know, the ending on the very first page of the book, it's like I explore in like the first paragraph of the book. I tell you what the ending is. Spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah. So, but it's the ultimate spoiler alert. But uh, so people are thrown by that. And then they're like, well, you know, what's really the plot? It doesn't make any sense. But but I find that I've, I've dabbled a little bit in uh, in romance. Uh, I 
I guess Jake's 88 is technically uh, could be called a romance because it involves a love story and it's coming of age or whatever. But uh, romance is a weird genre. Uh, I wrote a book which almost no one read called February Romance. This was this came out, uh, I guess, uh, 2017, I suppose. But it's like I deliberately toyed with the conventions of romance where I, I, I had a debate, I remember, with a, a fellow author. And she had been published very heavily in the romance genre. And she's like, well, no, if it doesn't have a happy ending, it's not romance. Oh. And I'm like, okay, well, well, what is it? Well, what if, what if you have a book where there's the main focus is a love story, but then they don't end up together. And she's like, it's not romance. It's not romance. And I'm like, well, what is it? <laughs> and she couldn't answer that question. And so I wrote a book uh, with, uh, there, there's a, it's actually, there's a couple of different story inter, intertwining plots in there, and a couple of them have a happy ending, but there's one that doesn't. And it's like, it, it's obviously still romance, but it, you know, it, it breaks out of this limitation of, you know, the genre has to be this or that or whatever. So uh, even within fiction, there are certain walls that I, I can't sometimes help uh, poking at. But you're right. I think that, that uh, you know, being able to explore different concepts, uh, you have a lot more flexibility in fiction than you do if you're trying to keep to a, uh, you know, historical narrative or, or something like that. Oh, God. I've just, I just had a massive throwback of when I was a child and one of my aunties, um, she had a book, uh, a bookcase in her living room and it was packed, like, uh, at least, at least a hundred of these really cheesy romance no novels from like the seventies and the eighties. And I, I know I just, I just got thrown back as you were explaining that. And it's, it's interesting because uh, I guess, well, it's like anything, you know, it's what's the intention going into creating something. And, and even just that story of, you know, this, this other author, I mean, her intention going into it is to ensure that there's a happy ending because there's an interpretation that the reader is only reading this because they want to feel a particular way when they're reading reading a novel, mm -hmm. um, and so I guess when you really drill into these subgenres of fiction, um, you know there'll be conventional ways of of what that intention is, and then um, obviously people that are challenging that as well. Um, but jeez, uh, I, I I don't know if that was a great memory uh, or or not, but um, <laughs> I, I certainly got thrown back then. There's been a few instances in this conversation where I've I've sort of just I've I've just gone off on another world. I'm like, oh jeez. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot that I had these memories. Um, Sean, I, there is so much that you do. Um, there's like you're involved in so much. And one of the massive things that I initially when we, we first started talking a few weeks ago as far as um, getting together and having a, having a conversation was and, and it's a reoccurring theme on this podcast where I talk about time management and I talk about like, cause I'm really fascinated with people that just are multidimensional and they're just, they've always got things on the go. And I think you're an example of somebody that it's, it's almost next level because the amount of time that you have to invest into each thing and the depth and the research and, and, uh, preparation is just, it's, it's quite intense. There's, there's a lot there. And um, I'm always fascinated with people that are really dedicated to to that level of intensity as far as the amount of time that they invest into the things that they do, and especially when there's, and it's quite varied as well. Um, but I almost feel like we have to go into a round two at some stage down the track and, and just touch on that alone because, I mean, we could be here for hours. But um, I guess maybe just before we wrap it up and maybe just, just to, I guess, sum it up really, really short and sweet, but you know, how, how do you structure a day or a week? And do you, do you focus on one project to get that ticked off and go into a next, or do you have a number of different things on the go? And what's, what's the general approach? 
Well, you know, I, I've been asked questions like that, like, because I mean, I do a lot of different stuff and, and people will say, you know, particularly when they realize I have, yes, a full time job, mm. you know, how, you know, how do you do it? And the answer is always disappointing. And because the answer <laughs> is, I have no idea. <laughs> uh, I, to, to an extent, it's kind of spinning plates. Um, it, it's like I, I have a number of different like long-term projects, um, most, like the podcast, for example, most of which kind of move forward in fits and starts. And like particularly like just, just today before we were talking, I was working on another um, episode of the podcast. And it'll, and it'll be like, you know, I'll get up and I'm like, what, what, what should I do today? Obviously, I have to go to work or I have to do this or I've got this deadline or that deadline. But then it's like, wow, you know, I haven't, I haven't put an episode of the podcast up in a while. And so I'm getting embarrassed about that. So I guess I better work on that. And then it'll be like, okay, I, you know, I'll do that and focus on that and get that out of the way and sort of tick it off. And it's like, you know, okay, well, there's a new episode of the podcast. And then, well, I've got this story that I've been working on. It'd be really nice to get back to it. Let me get all my stuff, all my other stuff done. And then maybe I'll have two hours to work on, you know, this, this book that I'm working on or, something like that. Or it's like, you know, my YouTube subscribers haven't seen my face for a while. So, you know, is it, can I do a quick video and at least kind of get on the scoreboard, so to speak. So there's a weird balance, I think of very kind of short term, like what can I get done today that moves the ball forward? So there's that very, very short term type of thing, but they're all kind of tied into longer term projects. And most of it happens on deadlines and on, uh, you know, working around other things. It's like I'm I'm working, putting a lot of work uh, recently into creating my uh, uh, speaking presentations and things like that because I've got some some speaking gigs coming up in the next month, and so I've got to be ready for those. And those are giving me material that I might be able to put into a book. And so I'm like, okay, well, let me start keeping notes on that. So it's really kind of just keeping a number of balls in the air at once, uh, but also. What I try to do is make a little bit of progress on something every day, and I'm sometimes hard on myself. It's like it's hard for me to take a day off because I'll think, well, you know, why am I here, you know, watching Great British Baking Show when you know <laughs> I could be working on a book or something. So, but you, you also need that time too. I mean, nobody can do everything and be on all the time. So um, sometimes I'll have. Uh, I'll, I'll, and I'll just have a time where I'm just like, you know, screw it. I'm just not going to work on anything. And I'm just going to power down for an afternoon. And those are, those are hard times to, to get through because I start feeling guilty about the stuff I'm not doing. Um, it's, so I, I, I wish it was, I wish, I, I wish I could say there was a master plan, but there really isn't. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, I, I've got a strong fascination to all this kind of stuff because I've got my own things that I do and, and I find this there's this underlying uh, feeling of being restless all the time, this tension where you just want to strive for more and you just want to chip away and just have this incremental progress over time. And, and it's really exciting and so it's a lot of fun. But you know, even when you mentioned having, having that challenge of just stopping um, and having a break and, and having a day off and things like that, um, I, I'm in the same boat and I sit there and I can't, like I haven't watched a movie in so long because I, I, just the thought of me sitting in one spot for, for a duration of time, just, I mean, it, it makes me feel nervous. But I think um, one thing that I've started to see pop up in conversation quite a bit more now is that those breaks are so important to the, 
to the, the larger plan where you need to have separation, where you do the mundane or you do something trivial or something that doesn't involve a lot of um, intense thought or action where your your mind has a chance to sort of almost recharge, but also to see something from a different perspective. It's almost like, you know, sleep on it. And once you slept on, on an idea or something that's challenging you and when you wake up the next day, then it, there's, a, there's a greater chance that you're going to have um, at least part of that answer or have a little bit more of an understanding of what you need to do next. Um, but it's all, it's all mind games. And it's just it's really interesting to see how different people approach it. But I think um, ultimately there's no, there's no secret source. It's just, um, it's just one step forward and, and just keep chipping away. Yeah, that, that's, that's pretty much how it is, I think. Well, I I've been writing a few notes as we've as we've been talking, and I've gotten a mountain of notes that I wrote beforehand. And I think I've only touched on about a quarter of it, but there's so much stuff, and I'm just so glad we had this conversation because I I'll definitely um, reach out to you sometime later in the year, and um, I'm sure that you'll have a few other things on the go as well. Um, but I will dump all of this stuff in the show notes for the episode. So people can dig in and and some of the stuff that we that we referenced um, your your books the YouTube channel um, you've got some online classes that we didn't really get to touch on a lot um, but there's a lot of online stuff that people have got access to and ways to I guess interact with you and, and especially if people are, are studying themselves or want to just get a, a better understanding of of, uh, of the world around them there's uh, there's definitely a lot of opportunity there to to learn more. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I'd, yeah, I'd love to, to speak to you again. I'm sure I'll have a whole a whole new slate of stuff to, to talk about the next time we talk. But, sounds, uh, sounds good. And I think um, uh, one thing that I, I really want to talk about this uh, before we wrap it up, but I, won't, I just want to reference it so I can put it in the show notes, just an excuse to put it in the show notes. But if anyone wants just to, a first episode, it may not be the complete correct reflection of your podcast, but if anyone just wants to listen to one episode to kick off a second decade podcast, go and listen to The Monster of Gloucester. Um, that, I really, really enjoyed that episode, and it got me on this rabbit hole of uh, learning about globsters, um, you know, unusual fish that exist, like the oarfish, um, and just the way that, and this is what we were talking about before, people interpreting different things and wives' tales and, you know, the exaggeration of events and the, the, the wide range of accounts of different things that happen. And that episode alone, I just really, really enjoyed. So that gives me an excuse now to dump it into the show notes so people can have a listen to that one as well. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you. That was a fun show to do. Awesome. Thanks, Sean. If you want to reach out to that history guy, a.k.a. Sean Munger, you can go to seanmunger.com. That's S-E-A-N-M-U-N-G-E-R.com. And as always, I'll have everything in the show notes over at andysocial.net. Make sure you go and check out his podcast, The Second Decade Podcast. Uh, really, really cool. I enjoyed it. And as you heard, um, we reflected on a couple of those episodes in there. Uh, be sure to check out his brand new book, Jake's 88. Um, you can check that out as well as all of his other books that he's written. Um, I'll have links in the show notes and I'll also have a bunch of the YouTube content videos that he's created in the show notes over at andysocial.net as well. So there is a mountain of content and resources to check out. Sean is a really, really interesting guy um, and has done and is doing so much. And I didn't even scrape the surface of all the things I wanted to chat to chat to him about. I'm looking at my notes here and... Um, I think we got through about a quarter of it. So um, we'll definitely have to catch up at a later date and also to see how Jake's 88 has been going for him because uh, you know, he's done a really good job at promoting that and integrating it into his second decade podcast. It was very sneaky, very well done. So uh, make sure you check out all that stuff. SeanMunger.com. Thank you, Sean.
It is update time. Woohoo! Okay, Lord. Um, so we've got a new album, Fallen Idols, that's due out very soon. Now, you guys would have seen that we've been talking about the album coming out in late April. I can say we haven't officially announced anything yet, but it's not going to be late April. It's being pushed back again. It kind of feels like this is our version of Chinese democracy. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's crazy. Uh, but there's some good reasons as to why. So um, I think I've alluded to this in the past or I've mentioned it. Um, we're currently working with our friends in Japan. Um, to get this album released over there um, separately. And um, that has been a bit of an ordeal. It's uh, been a journey. And we've been working with multiple parties, um, lots and lots of people involved. And sorry, guys, we've got a few trucks driving past in the background, so you have to ex excuse uh, the diesel engines. But um, we're working with a lot of people and some unlikely and unusual people, unexpected people. And uh, I might have to say that for a podcast down the track or maybe even a podcast guest, but we'll see what happens. Um, but a lot of exciting stuff, um, a lot of potential there. And we have taken some extra care with this because Japan's a great market for us. We've done a lot of great things over the, over the past 15, 16 odd years um, that we've had presence in Japan uh, through Dungeon and Lord. We've released a lot of albums over there. We've done a lot of touring. We've got some great legacy there and some great fans. And we just want to make sure that this album, which we are extremely excited about, we think that this is going to be a game changer for us. And um, we think our fans and our friends um, will love this album. And I think people that haven't listened to us for a long time or have never listened to us are really going to attach themselves to this album if they get the chance to listen to it. So we want to make sure that this album gets in front of as many people as possible. So for Japan, this is a really important market for us, probably the most important market for us uh, globally. So um, there's some great opportunities here. So we want to make sure that we do it right. So uh, that means that the album may be pushed back slightly. I don't think it's going to be dramatic. I don't think it's going to be like six or 12 months or anything crazy but it'll be a little bit of a delay and hopefully there'll be some more news uh, very shortly but um can't really say much more but in the meantime uh we have our brand new single united welcome back um you can find it on youtube you can find it on our facebook page there's a video clip uh, on there um you can find it on apple music and spotify as well although on spotify i don't know about apple music but at least spotify have completely stuffed up stuffed up our um band name and have not linked it to our artist profile on spotify so we're in the process of separating that uh, we had to send a manual request off to spotify and our cd uh CD Baby, our um, digital distributor, to try and fix that up. And, well, that's just a very slow process. So hopefully that's fixed up by the time uh, you guys listen to this. But you can find it. Just search for Lord United. You'll be able to find the track. Um, and please share it around. Uh, show some friends, anybody that loves metal but hasn't listened to us or hasn't bothered to. Maybe some people think we're crap. Maybe give them this song and see what they think. And um, we're really looking forward to getting this music out to as many people as possible. So in the meantime... A bit of an awareness campaign. Uh, you guys would have seen at Download, um, we had a number of people wearing Lord shirts at the Sydney and Melbourne uh, Download Festivals and all the sideshows in Adelaide and Brisbane and even people in New Zealand uh, for the sideshows, uh, Judas Priest and Slayer, etc. Um, people have been wearing the Lord t-shirts. So guys, actually I'll put it out there right now if you're still listening to this. If you guys wear a Lord t-shirt between now and, well, let's say, let's say the end of Oh, geez, I don't want to put it out too long. Um, let's say between now and the end of May, just for the time being. If you wear a Lord t-shirt to any gig, and this is globally. So if you're in Europe, if you're in the US, you're in New Zealand, you're in Japan, you're anywhere throughout Asia, anywhere across uh, Australia, it doesn't matter where it is. If you're wearing a t-shirt, a Lord t-shirt to a gig, 
take a photo, tag me in it. You have to tag me in it, otherwise I'm not going to see it. And shoot me a message just to give me a little prompt. And I'm going to send out a little patch pack for you. Um, I've got heaps of patches um, at home and I'm trying to clear them out because we have some new ones coming and they're really good. Well, hopefully they're really good. The design's really good. When we get them printed, we'll, we'll, we'll see whether they're actually really good. But um, some exciting stuff coming, and we want to clear room for these new ones. Uh, so in the meantime, we have heaps of Lord and Dungeon patches, and I might even throw an antisocial one in there as well. So if you do that between now and the end of May, get a photo of yourself at a gig wearing a Lord t-shirt. Um, if you're really creative, you go above and beyond, please let me know, um, and I might do some extra stuff for you as well. But um, I really want to reward people that are putting in the effort, getting the name out there, it's present, it's in people's faces, I want people to see it, um, so when our name pops up on our album uh, press trail and our campaigns to get the get the music out there and uh, get more exposure, that people will be able to identify and link back and there'll be some familiarity, even if it's subconscious. Uh, the more branding out there, the better for us. So um, any help that you guys can do to, to spread the new single around, um, wear the, the merchandise, wear, wear the t-shirts around, uh, spread the word, share stuff, uh, means a hell of a lot to me. And keep me in the loop with what you're doing, and I'm more than happy to send things out globally to reward and say thank you for your efforts. So please keep me in the loop as to how you go with that. But thank you very much to everybody um, that wore t-shirts to download. Um, I have sent a few things out to a few people, but um, people need to message me and let me know and give me a prompt, and I'm more than happy to send stuff out as well. So uh, thank you very much. Um, now, the other update, I know I'm waffling, guys, sorry. Uh, self-starter. Now, we are at the end of March. Um, I believe this episode comes out at the end of March. So uh, April, the month of April, I am finishing off all recordings to season two of Self Starter. And Self Starter will launch in June. And I'm really looking forward to these ones. I've got some great guests, um, some really cool stories. Um, it is both regional and metropolitan-based uh, uh, businesses and people doing amazing things. And I'm covering a lot of different uh, industries and just different types of jobs and things that people are doing. So lots of great stories. I'm really looking forward to sharing that. If you have any suggestions for guests for season two, let me know ASAP um, because sometimes people will pull out, um, people aren't able to do it, their availability is scarce, and I might have openings. So the more people that I have to be able to consider and look through, um, the better. So if you have anyone in mind or maybe it's yourself, then shoot me a message and let me know. But in the meantime, if you haven't listened to Self Starter, go over to selfstarter.com.au or you can search for Self Starter in your podcast player and have a listen hope you enjoy it. Now that's it folks. I'm sitting in my car uh, somewhere in the uh, projects of Chalora um, in Sydney's, what is it, Inner West? Kind of. Uh, anyway, so there's lots of trucks driving past. So I'm going to wrap it up. Thank you so much for the ongoing support. Lots and lots of episodes coming soon. My New York series, not really a series, but just a bunch of podcasts I've recorded in New York are coming in the upcoming weeks. Um, but in the meantime, there are lots of really cool guests coming up. I've banked up a bunch of episodes and I'm really looking forward to sharing them with you. So uh, continue to share them around. Really appreciate the support and the positive vibes. The feedback means a hell of a lot. So until next week, ta-ta, take care, bye-bye. Larry. Larry, please.